Episode 20. <laughs> what happened to you just I don't know. Then? I just got a little tongue-tied. Just got a little tongue-tied? Or was that, was that the microphone's fault? <laughs> I think we've been talking for the past hour and... I've just ran out of words. Your your jaw muscles have yeah. atrophied. They shouldn't atrophy. They may be worn out. What's the thing I need to say? The quick brown fox something. I've never heard that about in my life. Really? You're so, like, supposed to help you like pronounce everything. Like the quick brown fox hopped over something or the quick brown fox. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe I'm just making that up. But I I've never that heard. Was, I think you've made that up. That was the thing. But it but, might be something to do. I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, I'm going to try and get my act together so that we can about talk about something really exciting today so that we can talk about the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch. The Pentateuch. What did it take? The Penta. The Penta. I don't know. Right now our listeners are going, what? What are they talking about? <laughs> All right. We're talking about the Pentateuch, um, a.k.a. the Torah, depending who you ask. Um, what they're referencing, also aka the law, depending who you ask or what you read. Um, what we're talking about is that the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible: um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They explain the history of God's creation, salvation of Israel, and covenant with Israel, and leading them um, into the Promised Land, um, which is really exciting. Um, so we are talking about the Pentateuch. How do you feel about it? Um, yeah, I know this one today, if I were, if I were listening, I, I might be going, what? But hang in here with us because it's really very fascinating. And it's also, um, it's going to be good for you to understand that the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are tremendously foundational yes. for the rest of the Bible to, to all the way to Revelation. Um, so just some important things, key things. We, we were making fun, fun, fun of Pentateuch, but actually that's from a Greek term meaning fivefold books. Yeah. Penta means five. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, Taylor made, made a golf ball called the Penta. It had five pieces to it. Pentecost is 50 days. Yeah, Pentecost is 50 days. The Feast of Pentecost was 50 days from, 50, Passover. Yeah, from Passover. So it, So Pentateuch means five books. Um, and they are these five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, are recognized as the core of the Old Testament canon mm-hmm. or scriptures. So they're yeah. really important. Yeah, I mean, to have everything else from Judges to Malachi, you have to have Genesis to Deuteronomy. Yeah. Okay. And like you said, it's also called the Torah, which is also the Law. Yeah. So oftentimes th- these five books are called the law, the called law of the Moses. Book of Moses, yeah. The book of Moses, the law of Moses, and it includes the idea of teaching, instruction, and um, guidance. Yeah. And so, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty it's important. Pretty awesome. Um, I would say one thing that's, and you kind of touched on this, that's really important about the Pentateuch is that it's uh, it's just foundational for Judaism, it's foundational for the Old Testament. In reality, it's foundational for the entire Christian faith, Old and New Testament. You need the Pentateuch to really understand what's going on, what has God been doing in history, you know, who are the Jewish people, what are they waiting on, what's what's their deal, like what is happening. Um, and and the Pentateuch lays that foundation. Um, it's important one, and this is would be a, especially um, to Judaism and to even just ethnic Jews, it tells the story of the history of Israel. Like it gives us creation, but then from Genesis 12 on, it's literally telling the story of a formation of a people group of millions upon millions of people that are still around today, both, um, you know, worshiping God through Judaism and just as an ethnic people who may not be a part um, who come from this nation, come from this one man, Abraham. So it's foundational um, as a historical document of of a pretty important people, um, which I think is is really cool. Um, a- another thing that it does for us specifically is it sets the foundation for who God is. It's through these first five books that we learn a lot 
about our God. Um, one thing that we see is that he's revealed as Elohim, um, kind of the general term for God. It it shows that he is the creator. He's the God of power. He's He's got that creative force behind him, Elohim, who um, creates the whole world. We see El Roy, the God who sees. He's a compassionate God, a caring God. This is what Hagar calls God um, when he comes and, and helps her out and shows up to him. Um but one of the most significant revelations is that we find out um, that God reveals himself as Yahweh, or I am. He shows up to Moses in that burning bush, and Moses is like, all right, who do I need to tell the people that you are? And he says, tell them that I am sent you. Mm-hmm. Um, or Jehovah. Or Jehovah. It's the same thing. This is God's um, covenant name, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but this is God's covenant name, um, the covenant that he's forming with Israel, the the, his covenant faithfulness this is the the name that he reveals before he delivers his people and saves them from bondage. This is a foundational name that's important to who God is. Um, two, we see God reveal um, his his sovereignty, his power, his saving work, his intentional plan throughout um, saving Israel. We see his jealousy that he um, he has a righteous, holy jealousy that he wants his people and humanity as his. Um, and we see him place his power and um, his authority above all other gods, especially in the narrative with Pharaoh, where he's delivering his people. He makes a strong point of proving that Pharaoh is not God, that or, he is God. Or the many, many gods of Egypt Absolutely. are not real gods. Absolutely. But he's the only God, yeah. And then finally, we, we see God's um, holiness and light of humanity's sinfulness, um, especially with his dealings in the law um, and his commandments in the sacrificial system and worship and all of those different things. We see God's holiness put up against humanity's sinfulness. So it's extremely important in revealing who God is. And then finally, it sets the stage for how Israel specifically is su- supposed to live in relationship to God. So it gives us the backstory of how does God want his people to live, um, kind of what are the Jews going through in Jesus' day, though there's been some developments, but we get the the background. So we see this through various laws and feasts and different things like that. Um, we see the sacrificial system um, that they have to slaughter animals for the covering of their sins. Um, and then ultimately, we see a people that's not working for their salvation, but a people loving the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength in response to God's salvation. That that's how he wants his nation to worship him and live for them. And then finally, it sets the stage for Christianity. How, does, how do these first five books set the stage for um, the salvation of all people? And how do these first five books set, set the stage for for Jesus Christ to come and to do what he does in the New Testament. Well, we talk about the red line of blood that runs through Genesis all the way to Revelation. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about blood, I'm talking about the the reference to Jesus' death on the cross where he shed his blood for the sacrifice of mankind. You've got Adam and Eve falling in the garden. You have the the proto-evangelium, which is the, the first time that God makes uh, a, the the prediction the prophecy that that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of Satan. Mm-hmm. So there's a hope for the redemption of mankind. You have a sacrificial system that was immediately put in place when God killed the animals as sacrifices, not just to give Adam and Eve skin coverings for their nakedness, but also to give covering for their sinfulness. Yeah. So the sacrificial system was set in place immediately. So these are types or symbols or representatives that were pointing forward in time to the coming of that seed of the woman who would be Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. You have the references to the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ who would eventually come. Uh, you have all the temple imagery and sacrificial imagery, um, the light in the the temple yeah. Um, the, the what is the Hanukkah? Mm-hmm. So you have the uh, the light, which is um, Jesus said, "I'm the light of the world." You have the table of showbread. Jesus said, "I'm the bread of life." Yeah. Um, you, you have the one way to get into the the presence of God is behind the veil. Yeah. Jesus said, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the mm-hmm. way to God." All of these images, John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They're all images and representatives that are pointing to 
the coming of Christ. Yeah. And so And even what you just said, Jesus said I am. <laughs> I am. Yeah, he's the great I am. Yeah. So yes, every bit of that is found within the Pentateuch or the Torah. Um and so it it again, that's why we said it lays the foundation. Mm-hmm. We would talk about we've made this reference before you and I like to say this that it, it, if it wasn't for the first three books of the Bible, the rest of the Bible would make no sense. Wouldn't so even be needed. Wouldn't be needed. So Genesis 1, 2, and 3 lays the foundation, helps you understand why God has to redeem us and why mm-hmm. he has to save us. And um, and even in Genesis, you see how to have a proper relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Enoch walked with God yeah. and was not for God, took him. Noah was righteous you know, and sinful humanity. So it talks about walking and living in righteousness and in mm-hmm. communion relationship with God and how that was possible. I, what's interesting, a lot of people think that um, that you know Christianity created this idea or, 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 or Christianity was the context for the creation, the idea that that you are saved by grace through faith, okay? Mm-hmm. And that Paul was all because everybody thought you were saved by works. And so Paul came along and said, by grace, you said, and Peter said, you know, well, the reality is from day one, you've always been saved by grace through faith. Yeah. There's never been any other way. Absolutely. And when God saved Adam and Eve by grace through their faith, he said, here are these animals' skins to cover your nakedness, but I'm going to kill these two animals. To, mm-hmm. to, they're going to die in your place. Do you believe that? And they said, yeah. yes, we believe what you're doing works. And they yeah. put their faith in the work of God because God has to do the work. Yeah. So God did the work for them, and they trusted God that they wouldn't die in their sins at that moment, that there was a covering for their sins. Mm-hmm. So isn't it interesting that it's always been yeah. by grace through faith? So there are these foundational principles that are carried over and realized. You know, they're the shadow of the things to come. They're yep. fully and completely realized. And if you ever want to learn more about this, I want to recommend a great book called uh, the book of Hebrews <laughs> yes. in the Bible that actually breaks all of this down and, and shows that relationship between Old Testament to Jesus now, especially within the sacrificial system. Adam, I mean, uh, Abraham goes to rescue Lot, facing a superior army with more numbers, et cetera, mm-hmm. but with 300-something men, whatever it was, defeats that army, I yeah. think, by divine hand of God. And then this strange figure called um, Melchizedek, Melchizedek yeah. just appears out of nowhere, and Abraham gives tithes to him, and he's the priest of God. Mm-hmm. And the writer of Hebrews says that Melchizedek, was a, who was a real person, mm-hmm. was symbolic or representative of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Jesus come. Christ is a priest after the order or in the order of Melchizedek yeah. rather than Aaron. Yeah. He's without beginning, without end. Yeah. And, um, and Abraham paid tithes to him. And, and so just like we believe when we bring the mm-hmm. tithe, you don't bring it to the church. It comes to the church, but you're bringing it to God. Yeah. There's just, which is a new Testament thing. Mm-hmm. There's just so much, so much that's within yeah. those five books. Well, let's break it down. Uh, let, let's go book by book. And, and I want to say we're going to go book by book. Um, but the important thing is that these first five books and really the whole Bible is one continuous story. And so um, follow along with us as we trace this singular story of humanity's sinfulness and then God forming his own people. So let's let's go ahead and start with the very first book, Genesis. Um you can, if we're going to be real general here, you can basically break Genesis up into um, two different sections. And so the first is Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Um, Genesis is the proper name here. This is the genesis of everything, the creation of the world, um, the creation of man, and the introduction to sin in this world. And we see all of all of the consequences. And so Genesis is important, and I know we've talked about this a lot Um because we get the proper view of humanity, that humanity was made in the image of God, um, that we were created to have a relationship with God. We were created to be God's representatives on the earth and to have dominion over everything on the earth representing him. We get a creation of manhood or creation. We get um, the understanding of manhood and womanhood and marriage and family and all of those different things, um, which are foundational to just the way that we live in life. Um, and then on top of that, Genesis 3 comes along, and we get the introduction of sin. And so now, 
through Genesis 3 um, to Genesis 11, we we get a full uh, display and understanding of what is the plight of humanity. What is the main problem here that needs to be solved for the rest of the Bible through through the fall? Exactly. And uh, I want to back up because you talk about Genesis 1 and 2. You have you have the origin of man, okay, and you have the word the creation of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this this is so important to us because our kids go to school and they're taught the the theory of evolution, the the Big Bang theory, okay. Um, and you say something long enough, uh, after a while, people assume it must be true, mm-hmm. but they're called theories. Yeah. Okay. One of the most popular TV shows, which I think just ended, is called The Big Bang Theory, which really just, has nothing to do has with nothing that. Nothing to do with <laughs> it. Was really kind of some ways funny and really stupid in a lot of ways. Um, but the point is, they're theories. Yeah. But but you don't have to have ma- once you remove God out of the equation, then you have to have theories. Mm-hmm. Okay. Once you once you remove God, then you have to concoct answers that you don't necessarily really need because God's already given to us. So once once we removed removed God out of um the story, the narrative, then we have to rewrite the narrative. Mm-hmm. So that's why you have all of these things that that are that are men are trying to come up with the answers and their answers, it takes more faith to believe what we've concocted than it is to believe what Genesis one and two says. Yeah. But but Genesis one and two is important because it tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. He created yep. everything that is. And I, I believe it was a six day, twenty four day period. I don't believe in the that a day was thousands of years or eons or whatever. I, I think they were twenty four hour periods. God's God. He can do whatever he wants. He can do it in a second or he can do it in an hour or twenty four hours. Mm-hmm. Uh but that's really, really important um because in the day that we live there's an attack against that because see if God didn't create us then we're not answerable to God yeah we're not accountable to God okay then the creature can not have to say to the creator why have you why are you demanding this of me or making me this way we become masters of our own fate mm-hmm. commanders of our own ship and um it's just not the way it is yeah so just Genesis 1 and 2 is incredibly important yeah Genesis 3 it shows us where we failed. Mm-hmm. Um, it shows us the origin of sin, and it shows us that we are in desperate need of salvation. Yeah, and in desperate need of a savior. We're drowning, and we need a lifeguard. Yeah, and so that's what happens there. Um, and then you see the effects of that sin. Yeah, and um, it's those stories that people don't understand, but where the thoughts and men became wicked continually, mm-hmm. and God said, "I'm going to destroy the earth." We see fratricide backing up with. Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. We see, um, is it Lamech? Is that that dude's mm-hmm. name? Who's like killing get, killing people. He's bragging about killing people, yep. about how bad he is and all of these different things. Um, we see polygamy. Um, I mean, the world just goes bad fast. <laughs> well, I like to hunt, as you know, and, and my old joke was uh, about Nimrod. And the Bible says Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Yeah. But what most people, scholars believe is that that's not a compliment. Is that Nimrod was um, was a brutal dictator, mm. and he hunted men. Oh wow! And so that's that's where it had reached the point where men were killing men, and um, uh, there was just total rebellion against God. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the Tower of Babel. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, before that, you had the flood. Yeah. Okay. So God just regrets creating mankind. And um, is going to destroy. I mean, just think: all of mankind rebelled against God, except for one man, his wife, and his three sons, Noah, mm-hmm. and and Mrs. Noah, and and then the three sons. Um, God saves them to continue the human race, but then the human race once again it kind of divides. You have the the sons of righteousness and the, and the wicked sons of wickedness. Yeah, and so there's this division that takes place. Well, you even see it traced back to the family line that Noah comes from Seth, yeah. who is who is righteous, which I think is really really interesting there. Yes, about the effects that your ancestors can have on the way that you grow up. Yes, you know you see that model. Anyway, yeah. sorry, I thought no, that was interesting. That's, I think that's a great line. And then um, the Tower of Babel, they build this tower, and mm-hmm. uh, people wonder why they build the tower. Um, one of the greatest answers, which I believe is the correct answer, 
the reason they built the answer is because God had destroyed the world with a flood, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was no once you got on top of a mountain, God put the flood above the mountains. So they got a bright idea, and they said, we will build a tower that reaches to the heavens. And their point was they were going to build a place where if God ever destroyed the world with a flood again, they could climb up to the top of the tower and survive the judgment of God. Yeah. So see, it was not repentance. It was a work against God mm-hmm. and say, we're going to find a way around being accountable to God. There it is again. And God saw what they were going to do and said, they'll do it. Yeah. They'll they'll build a tower build that, something. I mean, I guess waters can only go so high, you know, God knew. And plenty he already said he wasn't going to destroy the world with a flood again. So that wasn't going to happen, but that wasn't his point. Is that now they're so they're so determined once again to rebel against me, and and to avoid being accountable to me. I've got to step in and do something. Well, he could have killed them again, but in grace, he confounded their languages and made all these languages so they couldn't communicate anymore. And then they had to spread out. What they didn't realize is God saved them. Yeah, He did. <laughs> and I've I've heard a few other things that I think are really interesting that I've never thought about it before. Like two that, you know, they said they're going to make a tower to get to the heavens that they're in essence trying to become God or get Mm -hmm. to God or pull God down. Um, And then I also hadn't thought about this. They were all uniting in one city, but God had commanded humanity, Adam and Eve to go and to take dominion of the earth. Right. And so now there's this direct rebellion against God's command to scatter and spread and take dominion of the earth. So through train changing their languages, they're actually forced to disperse. They can't work together like they were, were before and actually sends them out into the nations and could, creates the nations through the Could language. you imagine what it was like that everybody speaks the same language and then in one split second, all of that is gone and you're now speaking French? How did God decide who's German, going to speak what? Was it like Phoenician? family? I don't know. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I think that's it's interesting. These first five books, we, we haven't even gotten through the first half of Genesis, yeah. and we got to move here. Yeah. But isn't it just amazing yeah. what is there? And then it's, it, sorry, yeah. No, and, and then so he's dealing with humanity, 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 and then the, 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 the narrative changes, and the rest of Genesis goes to one man. Yeah. And I think this is cool, just throwing this out there. When you look at the day of Pentecost, it's like a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Now everyone is hearing God's the, the gospel proclaimed in their language that is missiological, that is proclaiming the good news of Jesus, not trying to spread them out, but bringing them together, not for their own glory, but for God's glory. Yeah. How cool is that? Yeah, not a, not of man's kingdom, but into God's yeah. kingdom. But you're right. So basically what happens now is God changes their languages. They become all of these different nations, and they spread on the earth, and the narrative shifts from humanity to one guy. And so he shows up to this guy, Abram, who eventually becomes Abraham. And now in the context of these nations, what does he promise him? There's all these nations on the earth now that I've created. I want to make you a nation. Yes. And and the, the you see God dealing with humanity. You know, you hear these stories, Enoch walked with God or whatever, Noah. Mm-hmm. But still, it kind of goes back to God's dealing with humanity, the mass of humanity, but now he comes and he calls this one guy who is a pagan who who's worships, not looking for God. No, really. who's, who's worshiping false gods yeah. in Ur of Chaldees, which is modern day Iraq. And God directly speaks to him a direct appeal, an invitation, a call mm-hmm. to forsake all that and to trust him and follow him. And so this pagan hears the voice of God, rejects all the false gods he's ever learned, and becomes this believer. In the mm-hmm. one true God who spoke into him, Jehovah, Yahweh, and follows him and says, follow me, I'm going to take you to a nation. And so you have this whole life of, Gen- of, of Abraham, but you're right, where God's been dealing with all these nations, now he goes to one man that will eventually, the narrative takes us to one nation. So and he go, tells Abraham, I want to use your nation to bless all the nations. Right. So it's always God reaching out to the nation. He's either yeah. judging the nations or trying to save the nations, mm-hmm. which shows that God wants to save all people. He's concerned about humanity. Yeah. But to get to humanity, he had to go to one man, which went to his son, which went to his son, his son, his grandson, which then came the, the, the children of Israel in Egypt, and then the children of Israel come back. And the goal of Israel is 
to become an influencer of the nations. Yeah, to be a light to the nations. To the light to the nations. Yeah. So that takes us through Genesis into Exodus, yeah. where they're in captivity, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, they went, the 70-something people went down to um, Egypt because through of the a Joseph famine. narrative, yeah. Yeah, the Joseph story, and, 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 and Jacob, the grandson mm-hmm. of Abraham, and they're down there. Well, then they become, you know, a million people, whatever they grow, and and they they put in they're put in slavery. And then in God's timing, took four hundred mm-hmm. something years, uh, four hundred thirty years, whatever. God brings them out with this guy named Moses. Yeah, takes them into what we know as Palestine, modern day Israel, and in one day creates a nation, which is awesome. Which is awesome. And so he gives them the law. So Genesis is kind of a book of history. Yeah, where Exodus. Is more the story of um, of legislation. Now he's creating yeah. a nation, and so he gives them these laws, and he gives them the ceremonial law, and he gives them civil laws because they never had any laws. Yeah, and then he gives them the moral law, and which is it's in Exodus that we get the Ten Commandments. Yeah, we see in Exodus there it's the fulfillment of this promise. So in Genesis we see the sin of the world, and God showing up to Abraham, I want to make you a great nation. You know, essentially, we're going to solve the sin problem in the nations, and he promises them even the Egypt thing, like they're going to be enslaved, but I'm going to set them free. And now God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham, that Abraham accepted by faith. So in Genesis, we already see, like we talked about earlier, you're saved by grace through faith. And he believes on G- or believes in God, you know, God promises him this, and now God's fulfilling that. And so when we take a look at Exodus, we, we can split it up, like you said. So the first, essentially 18, 19 chapters are about God delivering his people from um, Egyptian captivity. And the reason I love Exodus so much is there's so much typology there. There's so much that we see. So God comes to his people. Um, you know, they couldn't save themselves, kind of like the incarnation. He sets them free like we're bound in sin. He sets them physically free. They've got to slaughter a lamb so that when um, the death angel comes, he will pass over them. Um, Just like Jesus had to be slaughtered on the cross to cover our sins, God defeats their enemies, like he defeats Satan, sin, and death. He takes them through saving waters like he portrays in baptism. I believe the apostle Peter makes that connection later on. When they go through the Red Sea. Yeah, he rains manna from heaven, and Jesus is the true bread. He springs forth water from a rock, and Jesus is living water. He leads and guides his people like he does for us every day, and he's leading them to a place of provision and rest like he spiritually is leading us to a place of provision and rest. There That's is great. so much in this story that when we read it, it's just like the gospel over and over and over and over and over again. That is foundational for our understanding of who God is. Right, and that's why we're talking about these five books today. That And, and, and look, let's go ahead and say this. You're going to get – there's some of the Genesis through – Genesis not so much, but Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's some of it that you get bogged down in. Yeah, yeah, you do. You do, because it gets into all these civil laws and ceremonial laws, and you read it. Um, and, and these lists of names and you're just, you're going to get, you you could get bogged out, but you can't let it stop you. You Yeah. You got to keep working through it and get back to the narrative. And I think the narrative you can identify with because Mm -hmm. you can, if you'll look, that's why we're telling you this day, if you'll just look, you can see the correlations Mm -hmm. and how those things are symbolic or representative of what we have today and that God had this plan Thousands of years ago, he's yeah. always had a plan from day one, even before the world was created. And then you start to see that plan, you know, come into action. And don't look so closely at the leaf that you can't back up and look at the entire forest. So don't get caught up in each individual law and going, oh my gosh, this is so boring. What am I supposed to do with this? Back up and look at the narrative as a whole, and you can really benefit from it seeing those correlations and what God is doing. And by the way, let me say this. You, you know, you read all those laws for Israel and whatever, but um, we don't hear this as much, but we used to talk about this a lot in history. Um, in the Western civilization, in particular in America, mm-hmm. a lot of our laws, many of our laws, are based on Judeo-Christian laws that are found in the Bible. Especially the Ten Commandments, which is the backbone. Right, of but, all of those but laws. even the civil law, yeah. there's a lot of that has had major influence on our legal system. 
yeah on what we've we've had so well before we get there let's talk about the 10 commandments which are in yeah. Exodus and then we can hop in Leviticus so that first half is God saving his people but then we see God forming his people as a nation he's mm-hmm. he's making a covenant with them he's right. going hey I've saved you and now you serve me and so once again it's important to look at right before he gives them the 10 commandments what does he say I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt so he's not saying, do these things, and I'll love you, and I'll save you, and you'll work for your salvation. He's saying, I've already saved you. Now you love me and serve me. And so he's forming this covenant and this nation, and then he gives them the Ten Commandments, and then after that he gives them the instructions for the temple and various things like that. But these Ten Commandments, just how important are these Ten Commandments? I mean, they're the moral backbone of, of the rest of the law and everything that's prescribed, and they speak highly of God's character. Just how formative are these? Well, let's go back so that our listeners can understand that in the in the Old Testament, in these five books, it's called the law. You get law. You get legal matters, okay? And there were three mm-hmm. aspects. There was the civil law. Israel had been under, had not been a nation. They had been under Egyptian rule. So now they're a nation. They have to have their own codified law. Just like we do. Like we do in America. We have, we have, we have municipal laws and county laws and state laws and federal laws. So they had to have their own laws. So God gave them civil law. So Mm -hmm. you can read through it and it'll talk about all these different things Mm -hmm. and we won't get into it. Then there was a second law, which is a ceremonial law. Because God needed to codify their religion, mm-hmm. all right, they had not had a codified religion. Now he gives them the sacrificial systems and the feasts and all those kind of things. Yeah. Then there is a third law, which is the moral law, which is the composed of the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Now, in the New Testament, we are not under Israel's civil law, though we've borrowed a lot from it. Yeah. We are no we are not under obligated to keep the ceremonial law. That's why we don't sacrifice animals. Yeah. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. So we don't do all those. Yeah. We don't have to do all those feasts and all those things. Um, the civil law, we you know, just because the Bible says they stoned them. That was their form of capital punishment. We don't take people out back and stone them. We live in America. We, we abide live in America. by their government. We abide by our laws. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the moral law is for all people in all times. Yeah. Okay. So it's always been, it it is, and it always will be wrong to lie, to commit adultery, to covet what somebody else has, to to not honor your father and your mother, mm-hmm. to to use God's name in vain, to put another god before God, okay, yeah. to steal what doesn't belong to you. You take the Ten Commandments; those things, those things have always been wrong will be wrong and always will be wrong. And whatever's right, like keeping the Sabbath and obeying your your mother your mother and your father or whatever, honoring your father and mother, those things always have been, are, and always will be the right things to do. Yeah. So the moral law is in critical. I think that's why Satan has has attacked America and had, had a concerted effort to legally remove the Ten Commandments from our government, places of government, from our schools, mm-hmm. because he is. You talk about the backbone; it's the backbone of, it's the moral back, backbone of any society who embraces it. Yeah, he's removed it. So now we have nothing stating what is absolute morality, mm-hmm. absolutely right or absolutely wrong. You remove that, you've created a vacuum for Satan to influence society in this world system. To, to now we determine for ourselves what's right or wrong. And I think I read this somewhere. I can't remember what I read it. The just how foundational the Ten Commandments are, even for a society that like doesn't believe in God. Like you need the Ten Commandments because no proper society can function where murder is allowed. Like you, like whether you believe in God or not, no proper society can function where adultery is allowed and the family structure is consistently and constantly destroyed. No proper society can function when people are allowed to steal and take whatever they want and whatever else. You know, if truth isn't important, if everybody's allowed to lie, like it is foundational for a functioning society. And the more and the more and the more that we back away from that, not just in our personal lives, but as a society, you actually are going to begin to see the breakdown of that society. Absolutely. And if you split, if you divide the Ten Commandments, the first commandments 
have to do with your relationship with God. Mm-hmm. The, the remaining commandments have to do with your relationship with people, starting with your parents and then everybody else. Yeah. That's why uh, I love the fact that, you know, there are 10 commandments and I'm holding up my, ten, my five fingers in each hand, 10 fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, there are 10 commandments. And yet Jesus came and gave us two, which I'm now I'm holding up my two thumbs. Yeah. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Th- that can be fulfilled by keeping those commandments. The Shema we talked about the, the last in the last episode. And then you shall love your neighbors, you love yourself. Mm-hmm. So the, the first commandments, you know, so how do I keep those commandments? How do I not use God's name in vain? How do I not put any of the gods before me? How do I not make any images that I'm going to put before God? You just love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah. Or how do I love my neighbors? I love myself. You honor your your parents, you, you do. and how do I honor my parents and not steal and not take somebody else's wife and commit adultery and not tell lies? I love my neighbors, I love myself. I treat people the way I want to be treated. Yeah. So it's amazing. I see how all that all that meshes together. Yeah. So you have to have the Ten Commandments, um, and without the Ten Commandments, you're right. You will have the complete moral breakdown mm-hmm. of a of a civilization or a society. Yeah, you would. You'll have the corruption. There'll be, be yeah. corruption. Now, as we move into Leviticus, what we see is the Ten Commandments are the moral backbone. Leviticus gives us a breakdown of all of those laws, the civil, the ceremonial, the the moral. It breaks it down, and it applies it in their context as a people and as a nation. Obviously, we're not going to get down to the nitty-gritty of every law, but let's talk about the two important things that are happening. You've already mentioned one. God has called his people to be a light to the nations. And so what that means is Israel was actually positioned right smack dab in the middle of all of these pagan nations. And remember, you've got to go back to Abraham. That's why this is so foundational. He promised Abraham that through their offspring, every nation would be blessed. Well, now here he comes forming this nation and the the place that they're going is surrounded by all these pagan nations. They're called to be a light. So God gives them this law based off the Ten Commandments, to model what it means to be a people living for God, living holy, living in a just society, worshiping the one true God. God is giving them this Levitical law in order for them to be a true example and to not just have a just society in themselves, but to influence the world around them. That holiness really makes an impact where you're at, which is a principle that we can still have today. God says this, um, the key verse for Leviticus is holiness. Be holy for I am holy. That's God's whole breakdown of this. And so the law wasn't meant to be something that bogs you down. David in the Psalms wrote about how much he loved the law. The law was a gracious guide to a good society, a just society. Its laws were so much more fair and right than the other laws of the day, like the Hammurabi code and all of those different things. Um it was just punishment for a just crime. Here's how you live in a good world to be an influence of the day. So I think we've got to rightly interpret Leviticus, even though it may not, even though each law may not directly apply to us, it wasn't meant to be this heavy, mean, nasty thing. God was actually forming a really good society to be a difference in the world. And I think the I think you're right. The principles, you know, the precepts don't apply to us. Again, the civil and ceremonial. But the precept, you, you've summed it up. God said, be holy for I'm holy. I think it, Leviticus, you may have to labor through it a little bit. But again, if you'll look, you'll get this sense that God is holy. God is other than what we are. When The holiness of God is the distinctiveness of God, Yeah, the originality of God, what makes him unique. Set apart. Set apart from anyone and anything else in all creation. And what is awesome is he says, through relationship with me and my transformative power, I'm going to make you holy. Yeah. I'm going to make you unique. And a lot of times we think of holiness as being like sinless and perfect and whatever. And that's part of it. That's part of it is don't do wrong, do mm-hmm. what's right. That's part of what makes us different from people in the world because mm-hmm. they do what's wrong and don't always do what's right. Yeah. So that's part of it, but it's more than that. It's reflecting God. It's reflecting his character. It's treating people differently. And so we can learn a lot there because that has not changed. Yeah. Because – Paul in the New Testament still stresses that we are to be holy. They, they, Paul quotes Leviticus mm-hmm. where God said, be holy yeah, as, for I'm even holy. as I'm holy. Yeah. So we don't talk enough about holiness in this day and time. seems like everybody wants to be saved, but we, a lot of ways we still want to act like the world and do what the world does. And, 
And and the, the, I mean, the point is, you're in this world, but you're not of this world. So I think there's a lot to learn in Leviticus. Yeah. Um, and so then we move on to numbers. So just just to summarize, humanity sin. Sinned. God chooses Abraham to form a nation. He forms that nation, and now he's forming the laws for that nation, how they're going to live. Well, what God has done next is he's promised them that he's going to take them to this promised land, this land that's flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be a place of rest. It's going to be a place of rest from their enemies, and it's going to be a place where they're positioned to be a light to the world. So he's just given them that law and how to be holy. Now it's time to move from Mount Sinai on to the promised land. And so we sort of see this transition. So as we're looking at the book of Numbers, um, Numbers, I mean, yes and no, it is an appropriate name. There are like two censuses in the book of Numbers, but there's all kinds of stuff in it. There's military, uh, what am I trying to say, lists or whatever. There's narrative. There's like the book of Numbers is a really good book. It's not just Numbers. Um, but when we look at numbers, they're moving from Sinai to the promised land. And once again, there's kind of two separations in this book. You can divide it between the unfaithful old generation and the faithful new generation. And so we start off seeing this unfaithful old generation that has a really hard time trusting God and God eventually punishes. So we've got these like rebellion narratives, um, in the book of numbers. Um, so where the people will complain or rise up. God replies, he judges them, Moses has to intercede, the judgment ends, and then they name the place. So two of the more well-known ones are Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses' leadership, and then God's just like, yeah, through prophets, you know, I'll speak through them, and it'll be kind of vague. I'm speaking to my boy Moses face-to-face. Y'all need to calm down. And then Miriam gets leprosy and is judged. And then we see um, the rebellion of Korah, and um, God basically says, everybody stand back. Let me take care of this. He opens up the ground, and his whole crew falls in it, and then the rest of his crew gets burned. <laughs> Pretty much, and, that's it. And then finally, like the one you all know from children's churches, God's like, all right, let's go to Canaan, and he sends some spies. And when they see how big the giants are, all of the spies are like, yeah, let's not do this. We're going to lose. And then the the Israelites are like, yeah, let's not do this. We're going to lose. And it was Joshua and Caleb who said, no. God's on our side. Let's go in. But because the people didn't have faith, God says, you know what? We're just going to wander around until you die. And the new faithful generation, they're going to be the ones um, that that go in. We even see the Israelites trying to back up and um, they try and fight a battle on their own without God's permission and without his support. And they just get slapped around. Like we see this unfaithful generation trying to complain against God and God's not good and rise up against his leader and all these different things. And God judges them. He wants faith from his people. And so we see a shift from the old generation now to the new generation and the new generation are the kids. Well, let me go back to the old generation because yeah. there, there's some interesting things here since our listeners are listening to this. Sometimes we throw out this stuff. People go, really? Um, Miriam and Aaron Opposed Moses. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was his brother and his sister. Wow. Okay, so his brother and his sister are trying to overthrow. <laughs> were, were 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 they didn't want to overthrow him, but they wanted to say that they were just as called of God as he yeah, was. As he was, yeah. Okay, and and so they're 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 trying to tear down their brother's authority that has been given them by God. I mean, he has the ultimate responsibility of leading these people out. I mean, Moses is a big deal. Yeah. Okay. He's like he's like the man. He's their guy, and and so uh, Aaron, M- Miriam gets struck by God with leprosy. Yeah, and Aaron freaks out because he thinks, "Am I next?" Because yeah. he's the high priest, and and so Moses intercedes for him, and God's like, "You're not going to do this. I don't care if you are blood relatives." Okay. Then you mentioned Korah, uh, and I had to go back because I I knew the answer, but I just wanted while you were talking, I I double checked it. Mm-hmm. Korah. Was Moses's first cousin? I did not know that. Yes, sir. Moses, Korah. When Korah rebelled against him, you had family again. He was a Levite, and Moses was of the tribe of Levi. And so, first cousin said, "I'm, I'm, I'm tired of you being in control. It's time for somebody else to run this ship." Wow. And so you had kind of the anti-nepotism. 
where instead of Moses is promoting his brother or sister or his cousin, they're they're rising up against him, and and God, you're right, opened up the earth and destroyed them, took them, mm-hmm. and killed them. Yeah. And the point is what God what God sets apart as holy and has dedicated or called. It doesn't even matter if it's your blood relative. You have to accept it, and mm-hmm. that's what God is showing that that then greater than any earthly position or family position or anything else, when you are called by God, you have to recognize the work of God and accept that work. And that was the problem is that God was, whether it was through Moses or whether it was because he fed them, they got, they griped and complained about the the manna. He's given them bread in the, they're in the desert. Yeah, He's given them water out of a rock. There's clothes never wore out. And he's doing all these things for them. And they took it for granted and they still grumbled and griped and complained. Mm -hmm. Isn't there a lesson there for us? Who serve the Lord, and um, you, you know the people that I think ha- that have the the greatest difficulty is not the first generation Christians; it's the second generation Christians, the kids who grew up in a Christian home. If you're not careful, you you'll take for granted all the blessings of God. Yeah, your your parents they got saved; they were living in sin, but God saved them, and so they kind of have a reference point of what God did for them. But if you're not careful, you're you can be the one. But this was a reverse. The first generation didn't appreciate what God did for them. How quickly they forgot about Egypt. Oh, like yeah. the crazy stuff God did in Egypt. You they were didn't a care. slave for pizza. <laughs> yeah. And then some of them actually talked about going back. Yeah. But that's human nature. It's how ridiculous we are. And so you're right. God tries to take them into the promised land and they rebelled and said, We're not going. Yeah. They're giants in the land. All you know, they're bigger than us. They're stronger than us. And and Jacob and Caleb are like, yeah, no, we can do this. Let's go. And so God yeah. said, all right, if that's the way it's going to be, you're going to go wander in the wilderness. Here's something that our listeners might not know: from from Egypt to Canaan, it's only an eleven like an eleven day travel or something. Yeah, it's it's not long. Okay, God took him out in the wilderness though and kept him out there for a little bit while longer because he had to give them the laws, and mm-hmm. he had to get them organized. But once he got all that done, he was ready to take them up into the promised land. Yeah. It's time to go. Time to go. So they were supposed to go right into the promised land with probably in a matter of months of the exodus. Mm-hmm. But because they rebelled, they spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, and God said, you're not going in, but your kids are going to go in. Yep. And they all that generation died off. And all the little kids who came out of Egypt grew up into, into men and women, and they trusted God, and God said, I'm going to take you in. Yeah. So you you thought that if I took you into Canaan, that the Canaanites would kill all your kids? Now, I'm going to let you die in the wilderness, and I'm going to take your kids in, and they're going to be conquerors and overcomers. That's crazy. Which shows that if you have a generation that's older that refuses to work with God— God will just bypass you and find a younger generation. God doesn't need you. You need God. You need God. And that's why the, the numbers is all about is trusting God and walking faith. in faith with God. And that's yeah. why Moses dies and Joshua takes him in. Yeah. You have that Joshua generation that went in and conquered the promised land. And you begin to see that take form in uh, in the book of Numbers because eventually they begin fighting these battles, and they believe that at, at this point, the older generation is like dying out. And so the ones fighting these battles are the newer generation coming up. And so you see three battles in which they just start slapping them around. They just get going because this generation is trusting God, and it's prefiguring what's going to happen when when Joshua finally does take over and leads them into the promised land. Because this generation hasn't forgotten what God's done, but they're leaning on his promises. Well, if you yeah. think you were five or seven or eight when your parents all rebelled against God, and now you had to spend forty years wandering around the wilderness, they're like, "Uh, uh-uh. uh, I'm now. I'm forty five. I'm forty eight. I'm fifty. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm ready to let's move. Uh, you know what time I got left? Let's get in the promised land. Yeah, I don't want to die out here like my parents did. Yeah, I'm not going to go. The I'm not going to be unfaithful like my parents. Let's trust God. And they did. They did the very things their parents wouldn't do. It's it's all right there. It's a great book. It's a great read, really man. Is. It's a great thought. Like, wow, it's this fun. is numbers. And then, yeah. of course, that takes you into Deuteronomy. Well, and this actually transitions us, like, really, really well into Deuteronomy. Because what's happened is now um, they're about to go into the promised land. Moses is giving basically three different speeches is what the book of Deuteronomy could be broken down into. And the first thing that Moses does is he gives them a history of Israel. 
Because the problem with the first generation is that they were too quick to forget what God had done for them, so they didn't trust him in the future. And so he gives them this whole thing that's like, hey, here's the history. Here's what God has done for our people. Stick with them. Live for him. God has been good to us in the past. As you head in this promised land, he's going to fight your battles. Just trust in him. And so I think that's why it's so important um, in sort of the second section you know, God is going to tell them, love the Lord your God with the other, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, pass it on to your children, put it on your doorpost, do everything you got to do. I think there's a spiritual principle here of never forgetting yeah, what God has don't done. Don't forget. And we don't see forget. that in communion. Do this in remembrance of me. We're doing this regularly. Even Jesus established something that said, hey, do this constantly in remembrance of me. That's why God uh, put those feasts in order. That's why God told them they've got to remember, they've got to celebrate Passover. That's why they got to celebrate the Feast of Booths so that they're in their life cycle. They are never forgetting what God has done for them because as soon as they forget, their faith goes out the door. And that's why in the New Testament, we have some feasts mm-hmm. or ordinances that help us not to forget. One is communion. Yeah. Do this in remembrance of me. Mm-hmm. So that's our way. That's our New Testament feast. To remind ourselves, yeah. our Passover, what Jesus did for us and what he saved us. Not just that what he did for us, that he died for us, but the day he saved us. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to forget that. And then even water baptism, even though it's a one-time deal, you know, you should get water baptized. Mm-hmm. But if you're watching other people get water baptized, it should remind you of what he did for you. The, the old you died and there's yeah. a new you. So, yeah, the remembering is a is a good thing. And the church put this together. I know we don't celebrate it a lot, but there's a church calendar that maybe you're not even aware of that tries to actually do the same thing for you. Like four weeks before Christmas, we go into Advent time, which is you're waiting on Jesus. And then you go into Christmas time. You've got the 12 days of Christmas where you're celebrating the arrival of Jesus and then Epiphany where you're um, learning about the you know the revelation of Jesus, his appearance. You've got Lent, that, what is it, 40 days or something, waiting for Easter kind of morning, you've got Easter time, and then you've got Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, the working. Like even the early church set up these like ebbs and flows where you're constantly putting yourself in the story of what Christ has done for us well, so that we don't forget. Stain, if you, Churches that did stained glass windows would do stained glass windows with images on them. Especially so, for a illiterate, you know, right, hundred, in the past. Hundreds, hundreds of, of years, years ago, yeah. in the Middle Ages, and so there would be the first stained glass window would be the birth of Jesus, and then mm-hmm. the next one would be the baptism of Jesus, and the next window would show um, maybe a miracle done by – and then the next one might show him in the garden, yeah. and the next would show him being crucified. The next one, window, stained glass window, would have a picture of him uh, coming out of the tomb. The next one would show him ascending to heaven. Yeah. And so people who were illiterate, they could see each mm-hmm. week and know through the picture they could remember – yeah. And be reminded of the stories. So that's excellent. Um, and then, so that's why we we phase into Deuteronomy, and and we are reminded of the faithfulness of God. And then there's a massive portion in which uh, Moses brings up the Ten Commandments again. Sometimes you'll hear it called the Decalogue, Ten, whatever. If you want to sound super smart, just start calling it the Decalogue. The Decalogue. That way, you can sound like. And something. some of our listeners may not know that it's twice in the Bible. Yeah, it's listed twice, not once. Exodus twenty and Deuteronomy six. Yes, yes, I think, (laughs) I think that's. And then basically the so what he does is he mentions the Ten Commandments again, and then he spends this massive portion basically applying it. I mean, he he, it's an exposition on the Ten Commandments, and so you know, once again, this may not directly apply to you, but if you want to ask, okay, how do we apply the Ten Commandments? Um, Wait a minute, it's Deuteronomy 5. Oh, sorry about that. Okay, I had to correct myself. (laughs) But if you want to ask yourself, how do we apply the Ten Commandments? Moses is basically going back again and and applying the Ten Commandments. But we can't obviously go through all of that. But let's talk about something we've mentioned in the past in the last episode. The first portion that Moses is dealing with is basically... the the you know the idea of having no other gods before God, loving God with everything. The first thing he addresses is he gives us the Shema, which we've talked about again. So foundational for Israel. Hear Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength. That whole thing. He's establishing with this first commandment the way we live our lives for God, um, and that is out of a love 
for him, a genuine relational love for what God has done for us. And then he goes on and explains and applies the rest of the Ten Commandments. So in context, he's leading his people. Moses is about to be done with his leadership, and he's like, hey, we're about to go into this land. You're supposed to be a light to the nations. You need to be different. I'm giving you this command. Obey God and do it out of love. Yeah, it's foundational it's, for us. Yeah, heroes of the Lord our God, the and, Lord is yeah. one. You shall love the Lord your God is basically saying there's only one God, so there aren't any other gods. There's only one, okay? And then this is a unified God. There may be God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, three mm-hmm. persona, but, but but we're not polytheistic, okay? So even Which within, was important for them, especially because going into this land, there's going to be a whole lot of paganism. A lot of polytheism. So he was saying there's only one God, mm-hmm. that God is unified as one, even though he's three parts, three persons, and then you're to have relationship with him. Yeah. You're, you're to love him, okay? And you you love him and care for him and— if you love him, you keep his commandments. If you love him, you serve him. And, yeah. and if you love him, you obey him. I, I think that's the foundational is what What do we learn from that? It's just the same thing. Jesus has saved us, put us in right relationship with God. There are no other gods. Don't make mm-hmm. money, your career, your education, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband, your wife, your kids. Some people make their kids their gods. Mm-hmm. Money, whatever, recreation, that's not God. There's only one God, okay? Put those other things in the right place place yeah. and priority but there's there's only one god okay he's it and um and he's the only god in your life and love him have a relationship with him with everything you have everything you have give him everything yeah. you because he's giving you everything he has so give him everything you've got absolutely yeah and so he transitions out of this wonderful explanation of the ten commandments and then he closes with the warning of the consequences of rebellion but the life that you can have for repentance and trust and so Moses has given his last sermon, his last speech. He's doing this very pastorally in a way, even though obviously there weren't pastors then. He's loving his people. It's like, hey, don't be dumb. Yeah. Don't rebel. Don't walk away. You know, you will God will be faithful to his covenant, but if you rebel, you will reap the covenant curses. But if you will trust in God, you'll reap covenant blessing. If you Rebel against God, you're not going to stay in this incredible, amazing land and this rest. But if you stay with Him, if you stick it out, if you serve God, you'll get to reap this benefit. And sadly, as we look at the historical books and the rest of history, Israel's kicked out of their land twice because they rebelled God. They rejected the Shema and they started worshiping idols and all kinds of other crazy things. Instead of being a light to the nations, the nations influenced them. Mm-hmm. They intermarried, took on other religions, um, and and did all of that. But God, being faithful to his covenant, um, sent his son Jesus, sent his Holy Spirit um, in our hearts, and now the law is written on our hearts. It's not just in a book as a guide, but it's written on us. And through his regeneration, we can love God with our heart, heart soul, mind, and strength. We can obey him and we can truly be a light to the nations as God's brand new people. Exactly, and that's it. That's how all that, those first five books, segue eventually into where we are in, in this new covenant, in this new testament as believers, as followers of Jesus. By the way, we never said this, but I guess you all picked it up. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Yes, I Moses can't believe wrote, we missed out on Moses that. Moses wrote all Sorry. five books of the Bible, and, <laughs> and except the part after he died. Somebody yeah. wrote it. it, may have been Joshua or Who knows? Samuel, but probably yeah. Joshua. Um Here's probably the last thing I want to say as we close. Um, so we kind of give you, we've given you this overview of the first five books of the Bible and just highlighted things. And but here's the thing, uh, and this is going to really be true for all of the Old Testament. But let's just make it apply to the first five books. Mm-hmm. You can learn a lot from the Pentateuch. Yeah. Okay. Romans fifteen four. Paul says um, these things were written for our learning that through the patience of the Scriptures we might have hope. Yeah. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul said, now these things happened to them by way of example, and they were written for our admonition. Yeah. So we, we can learn. Uh, if People who ignore history are given to repeating its mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so you want to read the history of the people of God and see what they did right, but see what they did wrong mm-hmm. and say, God, help me not to do that. Yeah. Help me not to tempt you. Help me not to... to um, put other things before you or whatever. 
um, uh, help me, God, to serve you and stay faithful to you. You know, yeah. we can learn from that. Every time you read that old story, you know, what does that story say to me? It says to me, they got it right, I can get it right. Or they got it wrong, I need to make sure I get it right. Yeah. And we can learn a lot from it. Absolutely. So in short, in 30 seconds, sin enters the world. God promises Abraham, I want to give you a nation, a land. I want you to bless the nations. In Exodus, he sets him free, forms him as a nation, gives him laws in Leviticus, teaches him to have faith in numbers, encourages him to stay faithful in Deuteronomy. That's what we can learn from the Pentateuch and that we jump to today. And once again, we're still saved by the seed of Abraham. Matthew calls Jesus the son of David, the son of Abraham, called to live a life of faith, to be a light to the nations, to bless the world, to stay faithful to him, to look like Jesus as his brand new people. There you go. Boom. Boom. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hope that you've learned a lot. Leave us a rating, a review. Find us on Instagram at High Praises Church or Facebook at High Praises Church. If you have a question, send us a direct message on there. We might answer it at the end of an episode. And maybe if it's good enough, we'll do a whole episode on it. Thank you so much. We cannot wait to see you next month.